Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to connect with me over on Instagram at My Peace Corps Story, on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story, and as always, over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com. If you've been listening to the show and enjoying it, please head on over to Apple Podcast and leave a review for the show. Five-star reviews are extremely appreciated, but more than anything, I want to hear what you think so I can better serve my audience. And speaking of serving my audience and five-star reviews, I would like to give a special thanks to J.P. Gerhan, who says, inspired me to join the Peace Corps five stars. I first began listening to my Peace Corps story during the summer before my senior year of college. For many years, I'd always been fascinated by the prospect of Peace Corps, but I didn't really understand the nuts and bolts of how it all worked. Having listened to this podcast for well over the past year, I gained a greater understanding of what service in the Peace Corps looked like and how it could impact volunteers. Upon completion of all my necessary pre-departure requirements, I am thrilled to say that I will be a Peace Corps volunteer in Tanzania beginning in February of 2020. I'm not sure I would have ever opened the application without this podcast. Thank you. JP, thank you for leaving a review. Thank you for finding value in this show. It makes me so happy to hear that volunteers, future volunteers like yourself, have uh, decided to become a Peace Corps volunteer because of this show. This week is a long episode. It is the longest episode that I've ever done on the show, but it is an excellent one. On this episode, we hear from Jane Hale, who served in Chad from 1970 to 1972, and her story is a doozy. It starts off by leaving her fiancé to join the Peace Corps. Uh, She talks about the very different selection process that she had, uh, all the uh, sort of aspects of of being a TEFL teacher in Chad, uh, her love of bargaining for cloth in the local markets, and making friends with the local prostitutes mainly because they were one of the few people that could speak French, and she had a background in French. And she later went on to teach French at the university level uh, because she fell in love with teaching, or rather felt that she needed to prove herself that she could be a teacher, uh, maybe after feeling that she wasn't the most effective teacher in Chad. This is a long interview, but it is an excellent one. I hope you guys enjoy. So without further ado, here's the My Peace Corps Story podcast. This is this is this is this is my my Peace Corps Peace Corps my Peace Corps my Peace Corps story story story. This is Phyllis Noble. Today is August eighth, two thousand sixteen. I am interviewing Jane Hale, who was a Peace Corps volunteer in Chad from nineteen seventy to nineteen seventy two. Jane was a teacher of English as a foreign language. In a, in a lycée, teaching in French in, in Chad. Hello, Jane. Hi. <laughs> I was teaching in English. You were teaching in English. <laughs> yes. Okay, but you were teaching French. I was teaching English in English. 
Oh, the direct method, okay. You know? But in a French school. Yes. All right. I've got it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, that's right. TEFL is teaching this, English as a foreign language. All this Duh. many years later, mm-hmm. I don't want anybody to think that I was teaching in French because that was a no-no for Peace Corps volunteers. Oh, was we it really? Teach in English from the moment we started. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. Okay. Now that we've got that straight. <laughs> Jane, uh, tell us who you were before you joined the Peace Corps. Where did you, where were you born? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Virginia, in Arlington, Virginia. And I spent two years in Hawaii in my high school years. My parents transferred down there for a job, and, but I did graduate from Arlington High School. And then you came back to Arlington mm-hmm. to, to finish high school. And then you, I went to William & Mary, College of William & Mary in Virginia. Okay. When, did you have siblings? I had one sister, a year and a half older. Older Susan. than you. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so your family traveled together then out, out to Hawaii. Did you do other things together as a family? Oh, we had we had wonderful trips. We, my parents were both from the South. My dad was from Texas and my mom from Mississippi. Uh-huh. So every year, just about in the summer, we would go down there to visit their families. Oh, yeah. yeah. So we had these car trips hot car trips through the south in the 50s you know oh yeah it was fun yeah. a lot of fun oh good but the we my father worked for the federal trade commission and when he retired he he was a consumer protection specialist at uh, one of the early ones and he was recruited by the hawaii government when it had just become a state to come down and help them write some conforming legislation so oh. we got to go there for two years with them and that was how fun. delightful how delightful. That was life. And then you came back and you went to high school. Um, and um, what kind of kid were you in high school? Did, uh, did you do sports? I was, no, I was ex- a really good, conscientious student. Um, I excelled in in academics. That was my big thing from when I was in kindergarten, just about. I uh, was very shy. And... Once you got to know me, you liked me, but I didn't have a lot of friends because I was very shy. Shy. Yeah. Did, I, one thing I did do was I did theater. I did teen theater. Oh, so I, 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 that was where I found my niche uh, in my later high school years. Oh, that's great. Did you study French in high yes, school? Yes, I started French when I was in eighth grade was when they let us, that was when we began foreign language study. And I took French and I it went all the way through. I majored in French in college. I just loved it. I, I did really well in it. I loved it. There was no reason for it. You know, I don't have French people in my family or anything, but I just loved it. And it had this prestige at that time that I think it's kind of lost now. But, you know, it was the language of the the polished girls' education. And uh, it was... Paris is always there, you know, in the background. Yes. And so it would just have a certain cachet to it. And um, I loved it. But I also took Latin and then Spanish later on, but French was my love. Latin in high school? In junior high school. And then, yeah, junior high school oh. for two years and then college. Did you get a chance uh, as a student to go to France? When I was a sophomore in college... I went to France for a uh, program uh, between the two years in the summer. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a lot of uh, 
junior year abroad things that mm-hmm. my school right. didn't do any of them. They do now, but uh, so I went on a a tour with a, another organization mm-hmm. during the summer mm-hmm. college. Yeah, and in high school and college, did you did you have summer jobs? Did you need to work to earn some money? I didn't have to work in um, in high school, although I did. Um, in my senior year of high school and the summer before I went to college, I, I did because I wanted to. I worked in a daycare center as an aide, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And um, then when I was in college, I had, I got a job working in the library at one point for uh, not too many hours a week. And I, it was the worst job I ever had. I typed numbers on catalog cards, uh-huh. for, and it was a four-hour shift, uh-huh. and you got a 15-minute break in between the four hours, and that was it. The rest of the time, it was just the numbers, and it was it was terrible. When they told you, we, we don't have any today, you can go out and file cards in the card catalog. It was so wonderful. That was <laughs> ecstasy. <laughs> and then I also, in the summers, I had a really nice job um, in Washington, I would go home to be with my parents, and I had a job at the World Bank. It was mm. in the Africa department, and I worked in the French Francophone West Africa department of the World Bank, and I helped. Uh, we had people, economists and different professionals, all French-speaking, and they um, would prepare missions and go on missions to these countries in Africa that I was very excited about. And that was, that was, that was a job I sought. I, I kind of made yeah. it up before I found it. And it was, I was happy to have oh, it. It was a wonderful excellent. job. Excellent. So you were, I, did you say what you majored in? in I college? majored in French. You majored in French. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's so eventually you graduated from college. You've got a degree in a bachelor's degree in French. Mm-hmm. And, Eventually, you get this idea to join the Peace Corps. Did you do that right away, right out of college? Well, I was engaged to be married. Uh-huh. And I had met this guy when I was a freshman and dated him throughout college. And we were going to get married in May. I graduated a semester early, so mm-hmm. I graduated in December. We were going to get married in May and moved to California. He was, going, he was an accountant. And I was going to be a housewife. I don't know what, maybe try to get a master's in French and teach somewhere. I didn't have any, it was just getting married was the, was the plan. And it turns out it was, I could tell it wasn't going to be a good marriage. Mm. And I was very, and as the time got closer, I, I was ambivalent about it. And so I had done an application to the Peace Corps when I graduated in the December and I just kind of kept both of those lines going. I hadn't told him about it, of course. Mm-hmm. And when I got accepted, I thought, well, that's, that's it. Yeah. So I went, I decided I gave him back his ring. I went into the Peace Corps much to my, my parents weren't excited about my going away to Africa, but they were less excited about my marrying this guy. So that turned out to be good. And then, um, he came over, to visit me my first year huh, there, huh. and that was terrible. I kicked him out. I so sent you, him back. You're just, you trusted your 
I, instinct. I, I'm so that glad. I'm so, right. I, Peace Corps saved me from yeah. life. I don't know what. <laughs> That's great. Um, let's go back to you. It's December and you're applying to the Peace Corps. I'll tell you At, yes. why. You said when I got the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what made you do it? When, when I was... 1960 was when Kennedy started it, wasn't it? Was it was 61. 61. So 48, I was 12 or 13. I, when he gave the speech where he started it, I was, my family was watching TV and we heard him. And I said to my mom and dad, I said, I want to do that. And I want to go to Africa. And that came from nowhere. Wow. I have no, I mean, the idea of wanting to do something exciting came from being a person, you know, a kid. But Africa, there was nothing about Africa that was any different than any other place in the world to me, except for the fact that I was a big stamp collector and they had the ah, most beautiful stamps, stamps. Africa did. Yes. And so maybe that was my, my mind was just dreaming on that. And the names were very exciting. But um, so I, I didn't have that like on the top of my head for that many years, but it had always got kind of planted there at that time. In 1969 or 70, when you were filling out this application form, mm -hmm. was there the question whether there was a, any place in the world that you would not want to serve in, or was there, did you have a favorite place that you hoped to be assigned to? Did they ask you if you wanted to go to Africa? I don't remember about anything I didn't want to go to. I don't know if they asked me that. Uh -huh. Um I know that I did express a preference because I had been working in the World Bank and I had gotten yes. to know these different Francophone African countries. Yes. I knew that I wanted to go to a place where they spoke French because mm -hmm. that would be something that would that it would be interesting to me, you know, to to do that. And then um, also I wanted to go to the poorest country. I wanted to go to the country where I could be of the most use. Okay. You know? So this, this is very idealistic. So I, um, I asked my bosses in, in the World Bank. I asked them because they knew all these countries. And I said, where should I go? And they said, well, if, if you want an experience that is, I said, I want it to be very different. I don't want to go to a place that's a lot like where I lived, you know, and they said a place that would be very different and that would be a nice place to be and where the people are very poor, it would be either Cameroon or Chad, probably Chad. So I volunteered to go to Chad. Chad. And when I got, so I put that down as a preference. Yeah. When I got off the plane at my training site, the people who met us, one of them said, where is Jane Hale? And I said, and they said, we just wanted to see you. You're the first person that ever volunteered for Chad. <laughs> so, so I got what I wanted, but yeah. that was because there weren't a lot. Of, there wasn't a lot of clamor. Uh -huh. If I had volunteered for Nepal at that time, I probably wouldn't have gotten huh. it. That was the place to be. That was a hot place. Yeah, for the drugs and stuff. But oh, <laughs> oh my. So. Um, you you went to training about the time you would have been married, right? Yeah, uh, in May maybe. Uh, probably, yeah, probably May or June. I don't remember. Uh -huh. 
Where? But where did you train? We had a we had a staging in Philadelphia, like three oh, yes. days. Everybody had that, I think, at that uh-huh. time, where you went to the dentist and you got a new pair of glasses and a second pair of glasses, and you just got all your medical check out there to make sure that you were in one piece to go on. And then we went. They took us to to Canada to Quebec, oh. a little towny town called Saint Anne de la Pocatière in oh. rural. Quebec, and it was a it was a convent. It was a Catholic convent, and I think a school. And in the summertime, they rented it out to Peace Corps because they had these dormitory cells, like you know. And uh, we'd had our immersion, French immersion, there for six weeks, I think. I know it was one of those things, you know, you take the pledge not to speak any English. And it was a large group of stu- of people with all the Francophone Africa teachers were together there. And not necessarily going to chat. No, there were, in my group, there were 13, I think, going to chat. Mm-hmm. But um, we had Ivory Coast, we had Senegal, we had Togo, Benin, or Dahomey at that time, all, all of the various yeah. places. And did people know when they arrived in Canada which of those countries they were going to be going to? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so and because many... we stayed together as a group in our yeah. training, we, we met cro- with for cross-cultural training with people from that country. Oh, fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because... Because it, it was really a huge group. Right? Senegal, for example, and, and yeah, Chad and, are going to be quite right. different. In... And and we did like we did local language training too, and we had it was a very good training program. We had a we had people from we had a Chadian, we had a couple of Chadians working with us. People who were teachers who knew Americans, but also knew Chad, and 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 they would teach us our, our the language we were learning was Chadian Arabic, hmm. and they would teach us and they would answer our questions and give us advice about you know things. Oh, that's that terrific. was nice. Terrific. Yeah. Was Chadian good... Arabic. Oh, yes. <laughs> it was not. I was not a star at Chadian Arabic. My French served me very well, but. Well, well, when we when we get over to chat, I, I'll ask you more about okay. uh, the languages there. How many people were in your training group altogether? I really you know? don't know. Uh, over a hundred, I'm sure. Oh, huge! Yeah. yeah. Um, but and but we did get to know each other because we had we were together all the time, and we were speaking French all the time, yeah. and going. To and from the cafeteria, eating together. They had a lot of social activities. They didn't give us any time to be alone. Maybe we might have gotten a nap in the afternoon or something, but they didn't want us. It was sort of a, it was pressured. It was high pressured. They wanted to make sure that I think we could stand it. My Mm -hmm. husband Mm -hmm. said, I I hadn't been aware of this, but my husband who had been a doctor in the Peace Corps earlier said that they had some, 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 ideas that you had to put really pressure on the kids to try to make them break. And I don't think yeah. they did that. I don't think they were at that point with us, but they were, they were very strict about everything. And yeah. uh, so, so we all knew each other. We were kind of like all together in this, you know, was there the, uh, the um, process of deselection when you were in training? Did they call no. it that? No. Um, I think that was part of what my husband had been talking about. Yeah. We, nobody that I, I don't remember anybody being worried about not making it. 
we were worried about not getting a good enough score in our language. That was the that oh. was the main oh, part of okay. training. And for me it was okay because I was a French major, but there were some people that were really struggling and there was there was a minimum score. In so French? In, in French. Yeah. Because, they weren't so worried about the chatty and Arabic. No, but. They, no. But the French so they had to they had to have some some score. And I think there were some people that didn't make it. There were people who were worried about not making it. Yeah. And I think there were yeah. a couple who didn't. Yeah. And then there were there was one I remember who dropped out, who mm-hmm. just went home. Mm-hmm. But mostly those who came did it. So you didn't have interviews with psychiatrists or psychologists? No, thank goodness. Yeah. Thank good. Apparently yeah. they did do earlier. That earlier. Yeah. 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 Did you yeah. have that? Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> I might not have gotten in. <laughs> oh my! We get, we became very proficient in. Uh, mm-hmm. Dealing with those interviews. <clears throat> anyway, um, who who ran the pro- who was responsible for the academic uh, portions of the training? Or I can't. The I content of it. Was I it can't a university? tell you um, because I experienced it as as a kid as a volunteer. So I don't know all of the the hierarchy, but I believe I know we use. FSI materials, Foreign Service Institute. Huh. We use their training program uh-huh. and we use their grading uh, scale of one plus, two plus, three minus, that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I believe we might have had their, their people come in to do the testing. I don't know. The teachers, we, we would, uh, most of the day was spent in going to classes from one class to another. There'd be maybe 40 minutes of class and you have a five minute break then you go to another class and most of them were language training some were um, cross-cultural training and Mm -hmm. some were teaching you uh, to be a teacher but the the Mm -hmm. language training classes were mostly done by people from the francophone countries Mm -hmm. Uh, there were a couple of french people I think they were all contract workers, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but many of them did it a lot, so they, they knew each other. And then there were some former Peace Corps volunteers, oh, too, so who were doing it. So it was, a, it was a mishmash. In fact, when I finished Peace Corps, I became a trainer ah. for uh, about six months. It was a wonderful oh. experience. Oh, good. We'll talk yeah. about that later. Yeah, so I don't know. Yeah. I wasn't aware of a university that did it, but I don't think so, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Were there courses uh, about the the history of the of in your case of Chad? Yes, I would say we had what we called cross cultural training. Yeah, and that was there was some history involved, but the point of the training was to help us to be sensitive to another place, another culture when most of us had never been out of our own backyard, you know? And yes. and so they would try to teach us how people thought differently, how people acted differently than we might expect. Mm-hmm. And they would they would do that with historical and cultural roots. They wouldn't they wouldn't just say, well these people are weird they do this this is how this is how they came to speak french this is how this is why they have this attitude towards school or something so we would 
we would learn that, but it wasn't a history lesson, really. And we learned about the different regions of the country because we were allowed to choose where we wanted to oh go. Oh, my goodness. This is fabulous. <sighs> it was wonderful. It was, that was one of the nice things about being in a small group with 13 people. We got, we really, they treated us like individuals. And, and so, um, yeah, we learned, we learned as much as I think you can learn. And with that part was done by the Chadians. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they were very good at, at like saying, you can't say that if you're in Chad, Jane, and saying why, you know. And it, it would just be very, um, they were very open with us. And they knew how to, how to chastise us for not being culturally sensitive. Can you give an example of something that, that an American might say or do that would be offensive in Chad? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> I can't think of it off the top of my head. I can think of, we were warned so often, and this was by the American Peace Corps people, too, that we must not talk politics. Uh-huh. And so the, there was a lot of political unrest in Chad then, as there is now. And it was... Um, that there was a virtual civil war starting in the country. And so they were very concerned that we not express an opinion in any political discussion. Mm-hmm. And that we were kind of told that it's all, it's not any of your business and it's all much more complicated than you can imagine. So as a teenager, coming from the Vietnam War here, you're just going to want to jump right in and talk about what's fair and what's not. And uh, and I these are chatting teachers told us this too. They said, you know, you just don't know how deeply the resentments lie and they're, they're ethnic and they're, uh, they run along linguistic lines and racial lines. And you just, you're going to be in a situation where people will want you to agree with them. And you just have to learn to listen politely and to answer non-committally. Yes. And that was that was not something American students at that time knew how to do or, or even know now, but in the Vietnam era it was we were really activists, uh-huh. you know? Yes. And, and and so did they tell you how to respond if Chadians were to ask you your opinion about the war in Vietnam? Um that's interesting. I th- I don't think so. I think that they told us, hmm, I don't think they did because they were very careful. I always felt that Peace Corps was very careful to keep us from being pawns of American propaganda. Oh, good. And uh, so they wanted, I think, Somehow we all knew that we shouldn't go around saying America was a terrible country. Um, I don't think we would have been in the Peace Corps if we had really thought that. But they didn't, they didn't mind. They didn't want us to be anything but honest about our experiences. Um, I, when I went, one of the reasons that I might not have gone was because at that time, the radical kids called the Peace Corps volunteers Marines with Velvet Gloves. Oh, and I did not want to be a Marine with a velvet. I was going because I was against the war, not because I was trying to 
further American interests right, and right, capitalist right. interests. So that that um, they did they did teach us that when we were being criticized as as people as a com- as a culture as a country that we should be quiet. Yeah, they didn't they didn't just say here's what you say, but they said you know you're going to hear that and you have to learn to take it. Because you're going to be the one representative that they know of America. And you're going to think, this is not fair. And and I did. I remember thinking, it's not fair to blame me for the Vietnam War or for colonialism or for whatever it is Americans do. But in fact, it's the only person they, that they know that is that person. So it's like now I knew when I was teaching uh, college at Brandeis, I knew what people felt like when they were pointed to and say, well, what do Brazilians think about that? If you had one Brazilian in the class, like, I don't know. <laughs> it's just me, you know? That's right. So th- I do remember another, on those same lines, this was later, I think, in the country, they told us if somebody comes to your town and it's that American comes to your town, and they start talking to you and they ask all kinds of questions and they want to get to know about you and your, your job and they want to get to know uh, what you know about the people, you should not talk to them. Good. And I'm, I, they didn't say it, but I'm sure that was about CIA. Sure. Yeah. yeah. We all knew that. So, but no, no Americans I didn't know came to my town. It was pretty remote. You've described a, a really excellent training program. Do, do, it was. Do you feel it gave you as as much preparation as possible to do what you later did? I do. I really, I really, really liked it. And I know training was very has been very uneven in different places over the years. Um, this one was was very well run. It let's see, it was out. It was out in the middle of nowhere, which is why they chose this place. It could have been, it's, it was in Canada. But Canada has nothing to do about with Africa, yeah. but it's a French-speaking right. country, and it was very isolated. So we didn't have we didn't have a lot of distractions, and we certainly didn't have any non any English speakers around yeah. aside from us. Yeah. Um, later on, then we did six. Six weeks or two months of training in the countries oh, too. Okay. So we had this this language piece. And how, how long did that last in Quebec? Uh, probably six weeks. Uh-huh. And then I think there was, I think it was all three months altogether okay. between Quebec and then mm-hmm. we went into uh, Africa. The the bigger groups like went Ivory Coast went to Ivory Coast, but Niger and Chad went together, uh-huh. and we went to Niger, Niger. to do student teaching okay. and. Uh, I think there. I think there was a month of that. Maybe two months in Canada, a month in uh, Niger. So in Canada, you were learning about methods of teaching. In Canada, we had yeah, we had they had a Peace Corps method and the five point method, all in English. Oh, <laughs> they were they had it very well. Uh, they had it very well organized. They knew that none of us were teachers, or mm-hmm. most of us, mm-hmm. and that we didn't have a clue. So they just they worked up this method that was based on oral oral proficiency mainly because that's what they were into and uh, but they did they did do all the four reading writing and everything but they um, it was taught to us by former volunteers who had taught so I think it was a very practical 
introduction. It was a very good method because it was not dependent on materials, on textbooks. Uh-huh. And that was good because we you, didn't have it. You didn't have textbooks. No. Yeah. But it, it, it was made to teach you how to take, how to make a lesson from nothing. Oh, wonderful. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's and excellent. So I've always been, all my life as a teacher, it's people argue about textbooks and I just tune out. I just, you know, yeah. give yeah. me whatever you want. I'll, make, yeah. I'll do You're it. You're going to do what you want, what you know how to do. Um, so your six weeks or so in Quebec comes to an end. Do you get to go home before flying overseas? We had a break, uh, like three days. We were going out of New York. Mm-hmm. So they got us to New York, and I met my family there. We we could do what we wanted to for three days in New York. Three days in New York. But this isn't going home to go shopping. In the- well, you could, I suppose, if that's what you wanted, to, if you had the funds to do it. So you, you, you had, had arrived in Quebec with all the clothes you were going to take with you to mm-hmm. Chad. Mm-hmm. Wow. With everything. and and so, But in New York... My parents came up from Washington, uh-huh. and they we stayed in a hotel, and uh-huh. we went to see Fiddler on the Roof. Uh-huh. We, we never went to New York. It was a big deal, so it was like a big kind of celebration yeah. to see me off, and that was nice. The boyfriend came, too? Or? Oh, no. He was no, out. No. Of, he was mad. He was out of the picture. Okay. All right. He was not. He so did not participate it was just you and your parents, and my parents in New York together? Mm-hmm. Right? Three days sounds mm-hmm. about right. It was good. Yeah. I, I believe that at least one of those days I had bad diarrhea, which was a kind of a thing to, you know, showing what's going to, what lies ahead. I think I was sick for part of the time. And then you say goodbye to your parents and you go to the airport. Which airport would that have been? No idea. Back there in 1970. I have some... I didn't know New York. I, I you could have yeah. taken me. I didn't know. I was yeah. just I, yeah. at an airport with yeah. a bunch of kids. It was a full full of Peace Corps volunteers. The whole plane. Oh yes. And I know we saw Doctor Zhivago on the as plane the film, and we had like an eighteen hour stopover in Paris. Oh boy! And we got off the plane. We were dead tired. Nobody had slept the night before. Oh, Nobody yeah. had slept on the plane. Right. We were dead tired, but. We went out. I, I have I have something written in my diary about this, and we just went out through the town and uh, and went saw everything, saw everything we'd ever heard of, and then we got back on the plane and went to Chad. We went well. We went to Niger, and then we stayed a month there. That's right. So in Niamey. Um... Yeah. And we did student teaching there. It in a they had a summer school session of English for the kids in the high school, the lycée there. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Peace Corps volunteers taught it for a month, and it was very good. It was We had other volunteers as well as uh, Nigerian and Chadian teachers observing us and helping us and stuff like that. So, so we got a chance to be with real real African kids that time. The first, the first time we were in... Quebec, we were with little children, little French-speaking children. Yes. And that was fun, but it wasn't very much like our situation. But this, uh, my biggest memory of that student, two two big memories of student teaching time in Niamey. I loved the place. It was beautiful. My first was I went out to my first market visit with somebody 
I think it was a former volunteer, a, a returning volunteer who knew the system. And I wanted to buy some cloth in the market, which set, uh, set me off on a long, a lifelong buying spree of cloth in African markets. Describe the market in Niamey. Uh, it was, it was lively. It, to my eyes then, it was colorful. Outdoor? It was loud. It was outdoor. Maybe partly indoor, but open air. And uh, stalls with different merchandises and but all the same merchandises were together. This is the this is the, I'm describing any African any um West African market that okay. I'm aware of. The stalls all sell the same things. Like here you have this is the cloth area. So five different stalls with different people selling very similar types of cloth. So you pretty much buy from the person that it's a personal thing, you know, I want to go to that merchant. And then over here there would be uh, uh, beads, and over here, I'm think these are the things that I noticed. Over here, <laughs> there would be underwear. There, on this side, it would be fish, and then there'd be potatoes, and there'd be everything. They would do. They, they had everything. It was like a, uh, it, it was like a flea market almost. Mm-hmm. And they, they, I remember they had you could weigh yourself there. They had people with scales, and you. I think you paid one one penny or whatever one franc for a, to get weighed and they had like seven people with the same scales there and i always i from my american point of view i wondered why they didn't put themselves at different spots in the market because it seemed to me that they would get different people that way and more but if they were all together they weren't going to get as much money but that's just the way they did it everybody did it together you know, it's like we don't want five McDonald's together in our country. We want them spaced out to, yeah. to get people. But yeah. everything, it's a more communal thing. It's like this <laughs> is the community of cloth merchants. And, and it was very interesting. But anyway, I did. I found my first cloth merchant. I loved the cloth. My friend gave me a few strategies. And I started to bargain. And I got the cloth for what I wanted. And oh. he said, he said, I've never seen anybody do it better than you, Jane. You're a natural. Oh, and it turns oh, out wonderful. I am. That was one of my greatest strengths. Well, <laughs> first of all, describe the cloth. Was it hand-woven in Niger or was no, it from the, France? And It's the what they call the vax. Wax. Uh, it was, uh, I have a bunch of it in there. I can show you. It's the, in West, it's the same as in Nigeria. I think it's a print and it's done, um, the good ones were done at that time in Holland. And they were, um, they were done with the same techniques that I- Indonesia used uh, the wax, the wax uh. te- technique, and that that had been brought from Indonesia to Holland down to Africa, and so everybody wanted this one kind of uh, mater- material because it was well, it it didn't run, you know. Okay, it was it were prints, and they it, were beautiful. a kind of cotton. Yeah, it was all cotton. Cotton. Yeah. And what uh, colors? Oh, bright, vibrant. Probably the same thing you were used to in Nigeria. And a very, very beautiful patterns, a lot of geometric things, a lot of, uh, a lot of patterns. I, I loved it. I really loved it. And the ones that I thought were so, were funny, I don't think I bought any, but every time they would have any kind of celebration or somebody would visit the country, they would make 
a special cloth with that person's name on it. So you would see them. And I just remember one time that the Pope, this was, this was on a later visit to Africa years later, but the Pope had visited Senegal, I think. And I saw a woman in the market and she had the Pope, Pope's face right on her butt, you know, and it was just so funny <laughs> to me. I didn't say anything. It was just, I just loved it. I loved how people wore people's yeah. faces and things. So, well, now tell us how you bargained for it. You did an excellent well, job he on told your me, first. How, how he did told you me, it? he said, first of all, you have to, I think I might've been with an, with another African, African too, a Peace Corps, a return volunteer who knew the deal, and then another African, probably from Niger. And they told me, they said, okay, you look at the cloth, but you don't zero in on anything, especially if you see something you like, do not take any time to look at it. Just kind of, it's, it's there, but you can look at, you can say, oh, this is nice, or that one's nice. Could I see this one? And meanwhile, you're they getting an idea of what you're interested in and you start talking about the price and you say well i i don't have much money but i'm i think i would like to buy 500 meters of this and they would say, or however i don't know how and they say um oh well what would you what would you like to pay so you're supposed to give the oh, first you price begin? Yes. oh dear and so they said uh always begin with a ridiculously low price. And so I did. And because they told me about what it might cost. And so I did. And the guy started laughing at me. And he said, that's ridiculous. And I said, well, that's what I would like to pay. You asked me. And he said, and then he said, well, I can't, I, I wouldn't make any money that way. I'd lose money. So this, this material goes for this amount of money. And I said, well, that's ridiculous. I can't do it. I don't have that kind of money. So we would, we, we discussed back and forth. A little, mm, a little argumentative, but not really an argument. And more you, of a discussion. Are you smiling at each oh, other yeah, while you're doing yeah. this? Okay. And then I it got to where, uh, at some point, I said, "No, I don't really want that fabric. I think maybe let me look at that one. Maybe it's cheaper, and that would be the one that I really wanted." Oh. So we would we would have already bargained down to a certain price by that yeah, time. Yeah. And then he would say, "Well, that one." I maybe can let it go for a little bit less. And then, because I would say a price and he would double the price. And then we would try to come to the middle. And then I would say, no, I just can't do it. I'm sorry. And I would walk away. And it was the walking away that did it. Because then he would come. And I had to keep walking. It wasn't just, you know, hanging around. Just keep walking. And he came after me and said, you could have it for the price. So that's how I did it. And it worked. But you did. I. It was very important to me to learn that it wasn't. It wasn't arguing. They called it discussing the price. Discussing because right, it right. wasn't. It, you that you might have sounded argumentative, but it was all part of the exchange. That's right. And the idea was that both people had to be happy at the end. And I think that's a lovely way to think about buying things. Well, it is. You know, and and it's so you you were. You were purchasing in the way that a Nigerian person on that day would have Maybe, bargained. except I would have, they, they would have gotten a much better price than I. I was sure, I, always, I knew that I was paying more. But I also knew that I had a lot more money than anybody That's else. True, true. But I just didn't yeah. want to be 
paying more than I needed to because yeah. I didn't yeah. have a lot of money. And all of this was part of training. Yes. Well, that's it was all we were so we were surrounded by people with experience and who knew what we needed. Both Amer- it was good to have American and African trainers yeah. and uh, they all worked together. They all we grew up, we grew together as a cross-cultural community. Yeah. And at nights we would, you know, sit around and ask each other questions that we knew we wouldn't be able to ask to anybody else. That's, that that's we right. weren't close to us. Sure. Yeah. So you were making good friends among the volunteers yeah. that you were training with. Yeah. But then we didn't see each other. We all went to separate towns. Different, okay. Yeah. It was sp- once training ended, you were mm-hmm. spread out. When when you were in Niamey for that part of training, where did you live? In uh, the student quarters in the lycée, in the school. Oh, yeah. So they weren't there during, during the summer. Right. And right. so when we arrived uh, at the quarters, I remember we were very upset at how dirty they were, oh. especially the bathrooms. They were oh. just awful. And we, and everybody was complaining. And I, I remember I just said, okay, stop it. Let's organize. Let's go find buckets. <laughs> and we did. And we just yeah. got stuff. We asked the people at the school to give us stuff. We just spent the whole day cleaning. And it felt really good. And that was, it turned out to be that's the Peace Corps, Peace Corps way to do it. You know, it, it can be done. But that, that felt good to solve the problem. And then I remember one other thing. I was there at dinner one of the first nights. And we were eating outside. And I had, and I picked up my drink, and there was a fly in it. And I screamed, you know, because I was just about to drink it. (laughs) And people started laughing at me and everything. And then they all, the the older, the former volunteers or former, the returning volunteers said, Jane, that's a, that's a novice reaction. They said, the first year, the first time that happens, you do that. After the first year, You'll just take the fly out of the drink and throw it away and drink the drink. And after the third, after the second year, you'll drink the drink with the fly in it because you need the protein. <laughs> so that was a fun piece, core piece of lore. At the end of your training in the MA, was there a big uh, ceremony mm-hmm. of some kind? Do you remember anything about that? I remember we had a big ceremony for the end of the summer school for the kids. And it may have been all together. I don't know. The one I remember was the prize giving ceremony. And uh, it was really very nice. We we gave them prizes and everybody spoke about how much we loved each other. And it was, it was nice. Um, Then I don't know about, I know, I know I was sworn in as a Peace Corps volunteer somewhere by somebody, mm-hmm. but I mm-hmm. don't know whether it was in Niger or in, um, in Fort Lamy was the name, the French name of the capital at that time. Of, of Quebec? Of um, oh. Chad. Of Chad. Oh, that's right, because then you had to go on from Niamey to Chad. Well, then we had to go to Chad, and we had like a, a week of staging there where we got to meet the, you know, the director and the doctor and the different personnel and then then we went off to our post so it was dur- probably i think we met the ambassador during that time uh-huh. i think that's when we um 
were sworn in, but that was not a big deal for I. Mm-hmm. You know, that was maybe a big deal for them, but not for me. I didn't. So uh, this big, was the capital of Chad at yeah. that time, Fort Lemmy. Uh huh. Now they call it Enjemena. Huh. They've changed it. They've Africanized it right after I left. But Fort Lamy was what I always knew it as. And the the thing that impre- that I remember most, I don't remember the swearing in ceremony, but I remember the doctor. We had a they had back then they had a lot of resources. They had a, one doctor for for the volunteers in the country, and uh, he he told us he said. Any of you girls who are not on birth control, I want you to take some pills with you. Hmm. And he said, and I want you to, if you just let me know when you need them, we will make sure that you have them. And it was like, no, no adult had ever given me any kind of permission to like even talk about sex up till then. Not that I hadn't done it, but this was not something that you... You know, that I don't know, a person in authority offering me birth control pills right. was one of the biggest shocks of my life. Yeah. But it was very smart. Smart and, and, and assuming and giving you credit for being a fully mature adult human being. <laughs> he, hey. he was way ahead of his time. <laughs> not a teenager great. anymore. Yeah, it was great. And it was in the Peace Corps' best interest, too, of let me tell you. Of course. Ah, so... Um, then your staging time in Fort Lamy was finished, mm-hmm. and you moved to the place where you were going to spend two years working, mm-hmm. living and working as a Peace Corps volunteer. What was that place? It was called Abiche. Abiche. Mm-hmm. And um, how did you get to Abiche? I took a plane. You had to. Oh. And um, so it was pretty far away. It was far away, and it was. Uh, there was danger at the time on the roads. There were armed marauders on the roads. Which is big... one of the reasons why you'd fly. That was, they wouldn't let us go on right. the road. And Chad is a huge Chad is a big country. country. It's huge. Um, so it would take several days otherwise. Yeah. To and go. Wh- wh- where in Chad is Abishay? Abishay is right on the Sudanese border. It is right next to Darfur, Sudan. Huh. And it, in fact, it was a town of about 15,000 people at that time. And it has grown now since Darfur. It's because it was the place where they staged all of the refugee and humanitarian things. So it's like 300,000 people. They've ruined the town, I I know. And, um, but it was, it was an absolutely magical place. I went there because our, our Chadian trainer from Quebec, Usman, was from there, and he told me all about it, ah. and he loved it, and he he built it up for me. And it's a it was a very different place from other places in Chad because it was more northern, and in southern Chad, where most of the population was and most of the volunteers went. It was um, more like the place you were describing in Nigeria, where uh, a lot of green, a lot of uh, growing of cotton and peanuts and things, and uh, and the people were were from the animist tradition, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of them had become Catholics, and they accepted school early on. Where I was from, 
was Muslim. They did not like the French colonization. They rebelled. They rejected the schools early on. And uh, the, the, the Southerners were in power and had been since um, the independence 10 years before. And the Northerners hated that. And they were rebelling against against the government. Oh, And so there was this North-South conflict. Yeah. Was very, it sounds similar to what happened in Sudan later. Um, it was it was really hard, and it was beginning to be quite um, quite bad. In a few years after I left, they had to take the volunteers out, uh-huh. like they did with you the Biafra time, and they never they didn't put them back in for years. I think they're back now. So were the were the people who uh, the people of Abishé. Were they ethnically different from the people in the South, as well as religiously? Yes, they were. Um, and it was it was a city. It was 15,000 was a big place. OK, Fort Lamy was bigger than that. But those were the two major population centers. The rest of the places were, were much smaller. <laughs> and uh, so this this was a city because it was really at the crossroads between Africa and the Middle East. And uh, so people as it was people would come across the desert. The camel caravans yes. would come and it was a trading city. We had a big, big market. It was a wonderful city to be in. We had a market where you could buy everything, including camels. And um it, so people came from all over and people settled from all over too. There were a lot of nomads coming through, but there were a lot of different ethnic groups. Yeah. So the, everybody wasn't of the same ethnic group. They weren't all of the same language, but the common language, the lingua franca, was Chadian Arabic. Right, and it was a, it was a just a form of Arabic. I'm not sure that people in the other Arab speaking countries really understood it. I don't know, but it was a it was a just a, a market language. So, it sounds like maybe one of the big differences between that market and Aba Abashe. And the market that you had first bargained in in Niamey would have been different in the language in which you were bargaining. Yeah. In Niamey, you might have been bargaining in French. I was, I, that was all I had. Yeah. Yeah. But when you got up to Abishé, you'd that's, have to bargain in Chadian that's Arabic. That's the only Chadian Arabic I knew. I tried very hard to learn Chadian Arabic. Um, and I had a tutor come to my house and everything, but I just, I just, my tutor didn't know what I didn't know wasn't wasn't yeah. trained as a teacher yeah. Yeah. and uh I didn't know I didn't know what to do so and uh, the people who learned the Arabic were those who the volunteers were those who didn't come with very good French oh but if you okay. went with good French like yeah. I did everybody everybody that in my profession if if in a you know if you're in schooling everybody spoke French they could so they would just speak French with you because it was easy. Nobody was going to take yeah. the time to, to worry about, you know. So the only times that I was in only chatty and Arabic-speaking groups was when I went to a colleague's house for dinner, say, and they would put me with the women to eat. Oh, Oh, yeah. And that's that was one of the big motivators for me because I wanted to speak to them. They sure. usually would put me with the men at the be- beginning, and I and I'd say, you know, I'm not a man, you know, right. I feel funny, and they yeah. say, but you're a teacher, right. and, you know, all of this. And so, well, I felt like I had arrived when I got put with the women, but then I couldn't say anything. Yeah. <laughs> so I tried very hard to learn, yeah. and I did. I did know, you know, some, 
And I certainly knew enough to bargain in the market. <laughs> so That's great. That. That's great. I think I've forgotten it all, but I was, um, yeah, I was able to do it. Well, let's let's talk about where you lived, mm-hmm. and then later we'll go to school and talk about um, your job as a Peace Corps volunteer. But uh, you, you took, you flew from Fort Lamy uh, into Abishé. Abishé. Did someone meet you at the airport? Yes, and I don't remember who. I imagine it was a government official. It might have been the prefect, uh-huh. who was the like the governor of the area. I don't uh-huh. know. They were they were very um, respectful and there. It was an important thing to have a Peace Corps volunteer. Okay. But you flew alone. You weren't you yeah. did, weren't accompanied or chaperoned. No, or something. it was a little DC three. Uh huh. And it was I loved that plane. It it went. Once a week, I think, from Fort Lamy to Abishé. And they would put you on, and then they would put, they would, last thing they loaded was a cooler full of beer and Coke and, a, and put a bottle opener on top. And that was it. There was no, no steward or anything. <laughs> it was like, this is you. Here it is. And so that, that plane brought the, the mail in once a week. And, oh, um, wow. So somebody got me at the airport and they took me to, a guest house. The government had a guest house, a mm-hmm. very nice one that they had just opened, and it was on the main street. And they settled me in, and I was all alone. I don't believe there might have been a guard there. I don't know, but I, I just was all alone. And they said, "We'll come talk to you tomorrow morning." And I slept, and it was my first. I just I woke up. I went out, and it was all sand in the streets, and the architecture was all these columns. It, I felt like I was in the Arabian Nights, and uh, I felt like uh, I had just gone uh, into a fairy tale. There were donkeys and camels, and all kinds. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful city, and uh, so I stayed there for maybe a month, and then they decided that I had to. They had to find me a place. So then I went. So then I was invited by a couple, a French couple who taught at the lycée. They were about my age. They were very nice. And they said, why don't you come stay with us till you find a place to oh, live? That's nice. And so I did. They didn't really have room for me, but they, I ate with them and they really were very, very kind to me. And then, but then, you know, the government was, you know, dragging its feet and they, they finally said, Jane, you should probably go ask them to get you a house. So I did. And they found me a house. It was the across they, from they, the market. They was who? The, the, the prefect's office, the government. Okay. The, uh, okay. the, the governor's government. office. Yeah. yeah. And um, found me a, a government house, government-owned house that was across from the market. It was very nice. So in town. You're not on the school in compound. Town. You're Mm-mm. in town. Mm-hmm. And uh, it ha- I liked it. It had um, electricity. Ooh. It had a sink with cold water it i think it had a sh- shower it didn't have a it had an outhouse in the back um but it, it was it was fine i liked it it was very loud because it was across right across from the camel market and if you know camels are very loud and on the other side was a bar that played uh arabic music all night long. Ooh. So it was it was very loud, but otherwise it was it was a good place to live. And, and and did you do your own cooking? No. I that was one of the big shocks to me is that I I didn't really know what I was going to do. They did provide you a refrigerator. They that was one they would let you have a refrigerator and a mobilette. 
a motorbike. Oh. Yeah, that was those were the two things Peace Corps gave you. Oh, Peace Corps gave you mm-hmm. that. And so we all could have that if we wanted. And when I got when I got up there, I had a note from somebody that said the Peace Corps volunteer who was here before, Ed Lowe, said the refrigerator is at so-and-so's house, and she knows she's supposed to give it to you. So I, you know, I said, so I don't know what to do about this. And he said, well, I'll ask her to come over. So she came over one day. Turns out she was a prostitute that he had been living with. And oh, he left her the refrigerator. And this is a, a Chadian woman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I didn't want to take the refrigerator oh. from her. You know, it's like, no, that's... that was the last thing I was good. But anyway, we wound up being pretty good friends. It turned out, actually, that the prostitutes in town were the ones that I could talk with because they had some French. Oh, they, oh. you know, they... Worked with a lot. We had a lot of French soldiers in town. We had oh, okay. we had an army base, and mm. so um, so anyway, they were they were nice. I remember every once in a while, my mother would say, "What can I? What can I send you?" And I'd say, "Send earrings," because <laughs> you know? <laughs> they were they were cheap and they were easy to send. So I ha- always had earrings from my prostitute friends. And oh. It was fun, but anyway, oh. I don't think I ever got the refrigerator, but um, I did get a mobilette, and that was nice, and. So the fir- that was the first year. The second year, I was a little disappointed because I was living in uh, by myself, and and I had to have a cook. I had to. Well, hire I was going to ask you the first yeah. year too. You you I, hired a cook. Yeah, right? I didn't have a choice yeah, because sure. um, I did. There's there was no there, there were no appliances, and there uh, there was a little place in the back that you could make a fire to to do something, but I had no idea how to do that. And the marketplace was, uh, everything was fresh. There was no grocery store or anything. So I found out that if I waited to go to the market till after I taught, that the meat would have been sitting out Mm. all morning. Mm. And so if I, you know, if I wanted a piece of beef, I had to have somebody who would go to the market for me while I was in school. And the same thing, like in the morning, it really took quite a while to build a little fire and heat up for tea. And yeah. the so, my, and then people explained to me that if I did not hire somebody, that I would be depriving a whole family of a living. Okay, there's that, and that that was what really did it for me. It's like yeah. they expect you; you are part of the economy here. They expect you to be supporting at least one family, if yeah. not more. Yeah. And so I found somebody who was very good. He had been a cook for another uh, family, and for a French family, and he knew how to cook a lot of French food. He was good. So um, so I had him for That's that true. year. So he shopped? He, he shopped. He cooked. Did he do your laundry? Um, I don't remember. I think so. I uh-huh, think so. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, but then the second year... I, I was asked by a friend of mine, a Chadian friend, who was a, t- a teacher. His family lived near the Lycée, and they had a compound, you know, uh, a place where, you know, they had a, what, I don't know what you call them in Nigeria, a concession, a place where all the people live in different different parts of it. And they had a room that was the spare and he would they would rent it to me and i said i really want to do that ah. and uh because he said i think you because i said i want to live with the family okay. and his family was a very a very well-placed family they were it was a nice uh compound it was a nice family uh they really were kind to me and so 
I had to negotiate with the prefect to do this, though, because he, when I told him that I wanted to move, he didn't want me to. He said, he said, people are going to say that we don't take care of you. Mm-hmm. People are going to, they're going to say that, that when Americans come here, they get, they have to be in bad conditions. I said, no, I said, it's exactly, it's perfect. It's exactly what I want. And he said, but there's no running water. There's no electricity, that kind of thing. And, um, and I said, but I want to live with these people and I want to live the way they do and learn how they live. And so he finally said, he said, okay, but if let me at least give you furniture. So he gave me a bed and a desk and those, I wouldn't have had those things if he hadn't given me those. But uh, it was very, it turned out to be wonderful. The second year I lived there, and it was much better. So I'm wondering how how you financed this. The first year, did you have to pay rent no. to someone? No. It was provided by the local government? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, Peace Corps didn't pay for it either, right? It was part of the deal. Mm-hmm. You get a Peace Corps volunteer if you provide housing. I don't know if it, it, I think it might have been a different deal with every, every uh, oh, site. I mean, okay. they, they probably okay. had it, you know, they negotiated whatever it was. And, and, and then, the second year, yeah. I'm pretty sure I paid something, but it was very small. Uh-huh. I just looked up today, I was looking through some of my Peace Corps souvenirs before you came, and yeah. I found a letter that it said my, uh, every month they sent me 30,000 francs from uh, Peace Corps in the capital. And that is, Fifty dollars. That was at that time anyway. Mm-hmm. Fifty fifty dollars a month. Well, that's yeah. what it is now. So it, oh, so it would yeah. uh, the equivalent. Yeah, I guess that's exactly what I got. Yeah. The equivalent of fifty dollars yeah. a month, now, which was more than adequate. It was. I, I had money left over to buy lots yeah. of cloth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really did not. I I wanted to this life of voluntary poverty, but I didn't get it. It turns out it's hard for an American to become poor. In, yeah, in the rest, or at least yeah. at that time, it was, or hard for a middle class American to, to do it. So, um, yeah, I, I things didn't cost anything, and so I had quite a bit of money. So, in in your second, well, let's let's wait to talk about the second okay. year. Let let's because I, I have all kinds of questions I want to ask you about the family you were living with, but, um. Let's go to school now. You've you've arrived. When did you start teaching? When you were still living in the in the guest house, or I don't think so. Did, I, you, ha- did you have some time to? It's vague. Settle in, my mind. in, kind of. Since that time, I have uh, been involved in teaching in different places in Africa as well as in France, and the biggest difference in. Our system and those is that nobody quite knows when school starts. Ah. Um, even in France. I mean, huh. I went there for um, graduate school for a year. And I kept trying to find out where's the course bullet and what am I going to take? When do the classes start? It's yeah. like nobody knew. Oh. Like, huh. it just happens. But, so this was the French system in Africa, which <laughs> made it even more informal. So... It was like whenever the students show up or about this time. So I think I arrived probably in late August, early September, and I don't think school started till sometime in October. But oh. nobody really knew it, it'll happen, but not today, not, maybe not tomorrow. So, But it, it just somehow happened. And so I did have time to get 
uh, acclimated to this the town and yeah. get to know people. Yeah. It was good. So let's go to school. All How right. far from your apartment across the street from the market to the lycée where you taught? I took my motorbike. Oh, yeah. It was it was walkable, but it would have been a 40-minute walk, maybe, 35, 40-minute mm. walk. And it was very hot, you remember. So the motorbike was a blessing. And um, the second year, I was living right near it. That okay. was yeah. nice. So you... you um, Get on your, what did you call it, a mobilette? Mobilette. Uh, your mobilette. And you arrive at the school. Describe mm -hmm. the school. The school was one of the most impressive buildings in town. I think with, next to the mosque, and it was next to the mosque, ah. it was the most impressive building in town. It was a uh, school that served a wide area. People came from all over to go to this school And they had boarding there. They had some boarding students, but also a lot of families would send their kids to live with relatives in the town and, and go there. So it drew from a wide region. And um, it was called the Lycée Franco-Arabe d'Abéché. So it was French and Arabic. Mm -hmm. And it was half and half. It was, uh, they had different, admin, the different administrations on each side. They had different teaching staffs, and they had different, uh, I think the student bodies were different too. I think there, there might have been some way that they took courses. S some of the students took courses in one part and the other, but it, they were pretty separate places. And one in one place, the teaching was all in Arabic, and it was um, done by uh, people... I don't know. I don't really know who they were. We didn't know them. We didn't have much to do with them. They might have been some people from the Middle East and some people from Chad. They, but all the instruction was in Arabic, and it was it was geared towards the Middle East. Like these students were, if they went to college afterwards, they were going to go to Sudan or Egypt or someplace like that. And ours was geared towards France, and they were going to go. If they went to college, they would go to France. We didn't have a college in in, um, in our country in Chad, at that point. Uh -huh. They do now, but we didn't uh -huh. have one. And these were all men or women or a mixture? The students? The students. Um, they were mostly men. In the Arabic section, they probably were all men. I don't know. But mm -hmm. in the in my section, I might have had one girl per class. Wow. And I would have a class of 45 or 50 students, oh. and there'd be one girl. Uh -huh. That was very, very interesting because... They tended to be the children of um, wealthy people and people who had probably had some Western education and wanted their kids to have education. It was a very hard thing for them because they were in an environment where it, it was, I mean, it, Uh, most of them, I think, were seen by the other kids as prostitutes. They were they were not well treated, and so a lot of them got pregnant early, mm. and it they and they became a self fulfilling prophecy that any time you send your girl to school, you ruin her. Do you know? Oh. She goes out. You send girls to school, they go out, and then they get corrupted. And it, it would happen because that's that's the situation mm -hmm. when you have one girl with 45 boys who aren't used to having a girl. Around, yes, you know? and so she was either living in a 
dorm. She probably dorm, came from home. Or she would live with, she would live with relatives. Relatives. At, and the le- relatives may or may not feel parental responsibility. Well, even if they did, once you let them, they weren't prepared to let their girls out of the house. This, okay. this society, yeah. um, the girls stayed home. Yeah. And they, they didn't, if they went out, it was accompanied by a family member, mm-hmm. a male usually, or maybe women would go to the market and things, but, but they didn't, they, they, a 13 year old girl didn't walk around on her own. Yeah. And these kids, they just, they were they were put in a situation where they were, they had no support. Right. I don't believe their families knew yeah. what to do or even knew what was going to happen right. to them. And I think it was probably one of the hardest situations. I'm not saying they all got pregnant, but they, they just were very much fish out of water. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it was really no, no one in their family to guide them, to tell them no, because what sort of behavior was okay. None of the women had had probably been to school. Right. Right. And it you know, it's so different if you if you're in a place like if even in the capital city probably they that would have been different. There would have been some women who had who there would have been more women in the school and there would have been more guidance, but in Abishay it was a very very different kind of situation and chances are they may have been another um north south thing they may have been daughters of bureaucrats in town because those were mostly from the south oh those were people who had been educated in french when the french were there and were ready to take over those posts at independence so like the postmaster's daughter it might be her and then she's not only the only girl but the only person of her tribe of her ethnicity i mean it's totally alone isolation yeah Yeah. but anyway i I either did or didn't have one girl in a class and uh and and so you step into the classroom and the kids are there they stand up when you walk into the room well see i had been ready for them to be very passive and very not passive but very polite everybody had said this they said jane when you go to chad they're all going to stand up. They're going to call you madame. They're going to just, they're going to do everything to please you. Yeah. Turns out that's what the kids in the South did, but not oh. in my town. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh. So what was it like? It was horrible. It's everything they said it wasn't going to be. It was, I was, I was five feet tall. I was 21 years old. And these kids with the older ones were, almost my age, you know, and they were tall and they were Muslim and they were, and they didn't have any idea who I was or what I was doing there. And I didn't know either. It's like, like, why am I teaching English to these kids? What the hell is this about? You know, but they told me to do it and they told those guys to take it. So here we were. And so I tried and it's very, the classroom management was a problem from the beginning because there's that many students. We had no materials. Yeah. And I, oh. I did my best to give good lessons. But if somebody didn't want to listen or if somebody got up and walked around or did anything, I didn't I didn't have any authority. Right. I didn't know how to do anything. So And you're a woman. Of, co- of course. And you're speaking to them in a language that they don't understand. And they didn't have any idea yeah. why they were learning English. I mean, a few of them did. Yeah. I, I'm speaking in generalities. I had a few really wonderful students who were great. But uh, it was a very bad 
discipline situation. Yeah. And um, I had I had a lot of problems. But one time I walked, I went out to the parking lot to get my motorbike and somebody had slashed my tires. Oh, that was really Oh, that was awful. a bad day. I hated that. Oh. And then um, one time I had a class go on strike. And that's big, big stuff. And they went on strike because they thought I had been unfair to one of the students who had been sick and I hadn't graded his test right or something. I don't know. And, uh, and, so it was the the head of the lycée told me to stay away from school for a while till they straightened it out. And so I did. I went home. I was scared to death. I didn't know what to do. Huh. And then they finally had me come in and meet with the representatives of the class. And it was kind of humiliating, but I got back. But my my headmaster, Proviseur, they called him, he didn't like me from the beginning. So he was not very helpful in solving this. He was from India. Oh. And they had this, there's, a, I don't know if you had people like that in, in um, Nigeria, but there's a group of Indians who speak French uh, from, I think, Pondicherry. It's a, it's a very small part of India that was colonized by the French, and hmm. they, they grow up learning in French and Aaron so so they're very uh they're more French than the French very very proud of their uh achievements and so he was in the French colonial system and he had a big post as a proviseur and he thought very well of himself he was a big fish in a little pond and I was not probably as respectful. I'm sure I was not as respectful as I should have been or as he thought I should have been. And I didn't know all the etiquette. I was more concerned with etiquette with the Chadian people, and I didn't pay enough attention to this relationship. And so anyway, he didn't like me. But So that was, that was hard. But I did wind up having overall a good experience um in the classroom it was just hard how many different classes did you have to teach in a in a day probably five. Oh, that's a lot oh yeah and the the same were the all five classes the same or were they different no they uh, were different preparations they were, uh-huh. you know beginning and later and they had i mean they were all it was it was quite a system they had, each they had to follow the French curriculum. So in the French curriculum, everybody takes from the beginning of junior high school, they start a language, a foreign language, and they take it for three years, and then they start a second foreign language, and they take that with the other foreign language for three years. So right. they have for living language one and living language two. I think that's it's a, uh, distinct from Latin and dead languages. Uh, but okay. But anyway, so... So these kids came to school. When they came to school, they probably had six languages already. You know, my goodness. I yes. mean, they were they were from a very cosmopolitan area, yeah. and they, they it was just a very they they knew a lot of different African languages. Yeah. So they came, and and they knew Arabic very well, and then they they learned in French. So that's. That's not even a foreign language in this system because it's the French system. So then they have to take living language one, and that would be either English or Arabic, I guess, the, the literary Arabic. Hmm. And then they would take foreign language two, and that would be either English or the literary Arabic. So I was teaching some kids that were 
in first year of living language two and first year of living language one, those were different, different ages, different classes. And then up to ter- terminal, we, we didn't have that. And that was the last year. They had to go to the capital for that. But the, f- the last year we had, um, was the last year of the Lise there. And so I had, I had from beginners to the, the ones who, the young ones were easier. And the, the ones in the last class were easier. But the ones in the middle who were just starting, they were the first, they were horrible. I would think that the older ones towards the end there would realize they have an, they had a exams. final exam coming up and that would be a motivating They had factor. exams. Yeah. But see, it was so funny because when we taught... Two, we, they had to take these same exams that they had in, in France, France, right? Sure. And with the baccalauréat. And so... Literature, French literature? Oh, yeah. yeah. No African Oof. literature. Nothing, yeah. you know? And so so for the English, in Chad, they had, the, for the oral part, they had the Peace Corps volunteers giving the oral part of the English exam. Oh, my goodness. We were the only people that could, do you know? Yeah, yeah. So they had a written part. But the, the oral part counted a lot. Yeah. And, um, and I, I got a nice trip up to a, a nice town to do it for a colleague. And somebody came down to, to mine to do it for my students. And it turns out after that, after they had that exam, they came in and they said to me, Mademoiselle, they asked exactly the same questions you do. Because <laughs> they thought that I was teaching them wrong. Because I was teaching this active method or right. it wasn't like sit down and copy this in your book. Right. Which was, is, yeah. Yeah. They, they were really used to the, the old-fashioned old technique. And if I had done that, they probably would have behaved. But I was trying to get them to listen and participate and all this stuff. I, right. You know. So it was a losing proposition. But um, but. Once they got the exam, they said, oh, you were right. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, that was the teaching. I remember when when the headmaster took me around on a tour of the school, the first time I went in to see him and uh, get acquainted, uh, he took me around and he showed me, he said, okay, now here, and he opened this closet with a key, and he said, these are books, English books, for the fourth level, and there were like a stack of new books. And I said, "Wow, and I thought, this is great! I'm going to have at least one level with books." And he said, I, "I said, well, can I give them to to the students?" And he said, "No, because then we wouldn't have them." <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of that was the logic of the lycée. <laughs> we so, could either have the books or use the books. We'd rather have, have them. them. They look so nice on so the shelf. They gave me one copy, so I, I ah. could, you know. So use it how to did things. you teach without books? I'm trying. You step into the classroom. There's a chalkboard and chalk. Yep. Uh, not have, chalk. You have to no. bring your chalk. But oh, there's chalkboard. Yeah, and um, students have notebooks and pencils. They have notebooks and pencils. Yeah, and you, most of the teachers would write things on the board for them to copy down. Yeah. That would be the lesson. Right. But you, using the method you had been taught in Canada, okay, so what did you do? Today I'm teaching you um, a lesson. The five parts of it, one, one is there's a small text on, on your level. Uh, 
and we're, we're going to prepare that text. So I pull out the vocabulary. I choose a text. I have a book at home that I choose something from. Okay. Whatever, um, I, I use those. They gave me one of those fourth level yes. books. I used yes. that. But I had, and, I had some other materials. Would you copy that text onto the board? Or did you have a duplicating mm-hmm. machine no. or something? A I, would, I would decide like a, a paragraph. And so I would pull out the words from the paragraph in planning the lesson. I would say, these are the words that they won't know. And then this is the grammar point that I'm going to, if this is in uh, this tense. So I'm going to work on this tense today. And so the five point, point lesson was introduction where you warm them up and you review something from yesterday. Then you present the text. You write it on the board. No, you present the words. You work on the words, you write them on the board, and then you present them, and you get them. You don't give them the French equivalent. You act them out, you bring in visual aids, you stand on your head. No, you do whatever you can to get them to understand. And if they don't want to, they won't, right? So you do that, and then you give them, You uh, the third point would be a grammar lesson using those words somehow with whatever grammar point you're doing and the fourth part would be the text you'd bring up the text you'd Mm -hmm. write it on the board Mm -hmm. they would write it in their books Mm -hmm. and then you would work on it and understanding and uh, uh, learning it and then the fifth part would be review of everything okay and at some point the kids have to read the text too and pronounce the english correctly yeah i suppose yeah that's part that's the fourth part yeah. But they had they were supposed to understand it too. Yeah. Well, this sounds extremely difficult. It was the hard. classroom management part being the hardest aspect of yes. it. Were there times where you thought you would just quit and go home? I wasn't about to go home. I, I everybody had told me you won't make it. You know, you'll never last. Really? Yeah. Who? Who was My the everybody? Parents, every, oh, you, everybody. Oh, not you know. the Peace Corps. But, no, not any Peace Corps people, but okay. it was an unusual thing to do back then. Yeah. Um, and if people thought I was crazy, and uh, I think they, people, I found out later that people told my parents that they didn't think I'd last. My parents didn't dare say that to me because they knew that, you know, that that would make me do something even crazier. But, um, <laughs> They never told me they didn't like my boyfriend, but they were very glad when I got rid of him because, you know. So anyway, um, and I really did feel like, I really felt miserable. I felt like I was, I put it all on myself that I was not doing the right thing. And I just kept searching for how to do it better. It was also, there were a couple of things that made it hard. One is I was very sick uh, oh. a couple of times for periods i had dysentery i had amoebic dysentery mm. and that is just um just so just lays you out so i missed some school one time i had to fly down to the capital and i stayed at the peace corps doctor's house and his wife took care of me and um so i was very weak i lost a lot of weight and i was very weak from that and what else that made me miserable one time I fainted in the classroom. Oh. That was very hard. Oh. But they were they were nice to me then. So that that I liked. If, if it took that to get nice, okay. Um, 
But I did have one of the things that I did that kind of saved me was I set up an English library at the Catholic mission in town. And we, uh, and it was an after-school project. I took my best English students from the Lycée, and we started an English lending library. And it was a place that Catholic priest was very, very nice and very happy to help us because these were all Muslim kids. He couldn't. He he had a basketball court that he let them play on, and then he could get them in for the English library. That was about all that he could do with them. You know. And he's from France. Yeah. 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 So, but he he served the French people in the town. But anyway, yes. he was happy to have these things, and he gave me a beautiful room in the library, and we set it up, and um, I had books, and I got U.S. In- IA, I think, information, whatever it was, U.S. Information Service or whatever, to send me some books from the Capitol. And then my mother started sending me books. And um, so we had a library and uh, we had a date stamp and a little card index and everything. And the students that worked with me loved it. And they they had a lot of responsibility and they, they really got the system down. They took out books and they would come and they would sit around and talk um, in the afternoons and they would talk English. They would. So it was like a teacher's dream. Maybe it's not working at the Lycée, but the ones who want to are here. And there was the same kids from your, your Lycée. Yes, but it was the, the ones who really wanted right. to learn. Right. And uh, and so I got to know them, and they got to know me, and I, that helped a lot. Oh, no kidding. So that yeah. was one of the big, um, big good things. Um, you mentioned having to fly to the capital city when you were really ill with dysentery one time. Was there no doctor in town? There were. That- there were some. Um, there was an Indian doctor. Uh-huh. And there was a French doctor. Uh-huh. Both of them spoke French and worked uh-huh. at a at a hospital there. Um, and I went to them, but it was too. It was more than they could. Right, right. I was really sick. They wanted Did, me to. I was losing weight, and they just wanted me yeah. to go out and get. And you're the only Peace Corps volunteer in this whole city for the first year. The second year, they put another guy in with okay. me. Okay. Um, was there a phone? Like if you if you were really in trouble, how would you communicate with the Peace Corps? Uh, there were phones. I didn't have a phone. There was one. There were phones in the Lycée. Uh. Uh, I had a I had a boyfriend who was French, and he had a uh. phone. He he uh. ran the Alliance Française in oh. town, so I could use I could ask him to make a call. Uh-huh. But there weren't many phones. It was possible. It was possible, yeah. So you come to the end of your first year, mm-hmm. and there's probably school holidays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How 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 big a break did you have there? We had. This is a very interesting question because I people. I, I have a letter in there from some volunteer that I trained talking about. Well, we have the summer off. We just got an official communique from Peace Corps saying that we have 48 days of vacation and not one more. But somebody somebody never told, you know. Anyway, so we had the summer off. But I agreed to, they asked me to come down uh, to the, uh, this town in the south to be part of the training, in-country training program for the new volunteers. Oh, after you'd been there for one year. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And so I did that for the a month in the summer. Mm. But the... 
the previous part of the summer, I planned a trip. I, tr- I, all the, um, all the expatriates in town went home for this. All the French people went home for this summer. Uh-huh. And a lot of the, um, the students and teachers did too, because they were not from that town. So it wasn't much point in sitting around the town. There wasn't anything going on. So their, their school vacation coincided with the European school vacation, mm-hmm. June, July, August, mm-hmm. sort of. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, we, I said, I'm going to see the rest of Africa. And I had a ah. friend who I had met at the World Bank who had gone over to become the secretary to the Africa mission in Abidjan, in mm-hmm. Ivory Coast. Mm-hmm. And so I said, she invited, she said, well, while you're over there, you should come visit me. Well, Chad to Ivory Coast is pretty far, small, a big distance. But I said, I'm just going to do this. So I, I got out the map and I started looking. And it's like all across the coast of West Africa. But I did it. And I, and I didn't occur to me that, you know, it was dangerous or whatever. I well, just said, this will work. Let's hear how you went. From, from so I went from Forlami yeah. to Cameroon. I actually don't remember. I probably took a, a bush taxi to, mm-hmm. to that. And then I went through Cameroon on a train. So you're I don't going think from north to south yeah. in Cameroon. I went to, to the coast yeah. on a train. Yeah. And that was lovely. And then when I was in Cameroon, they had told me that I would not be able to go through Nigeria oh, because the it takes, was still you could only get a 24-hour visa and it would take more than 24 hours to get across. And yeah. so... I said, well, what can I do? And they, they said, well, you can fly. You can fly in and out, but you still have to get a visa. You can't get a visa from um, <clears throat> Chad. You have to get it from Cameroon. Uh-huh. So I went to the whatever Nigerian embassy in Cameroon, and I said what I was going to do. And I said I was going to go and stay one night in Lagos and then take the plane. I couldn't take the plane take the plane in and take the plane out yeah and they said uh okay so they gave me the thing so i went i took a plane to lagos i got to lagos didn't know anybody um did you go to the peace corps office no maybe there even wasn't i had no idea yeah i had no idea about any of that i found a a ywca in lagos my goodness and i I met a cab driver at the airport. I mean, I got a cab driver at the airport. And it became clear to me after a while that he was not going to take me to the YWCA. And he was driving oh. me all around. So I remember I got out my umbrella and I hit him and I got out of the car. That was the only bad thing that happened to me on the whole journey. Huh. Of course, it had to be in Lagos. But anyway, I stayed overnight in the YWCA. I flew out of... So I only got... You, you that's got all into I know a different cab Nigeria. or something, right? Yeah. You somehow got yeah. there. Yeah. So then the next place, uh, what's on the other side? Uh, Daomey. Daome. So time. I went to Daomey and I stayed there and we, I... We and might I mention that Daomey is now Benin. Yes. But the people of Benin... Would like it to be Daomey again, I think, because it that was this perfectly good African name. It was yes. um, anyway. So d- then I went to Togo on a stadium. You're going right? along the coast. Now, yeah, I'm right? going yeah. along, and yeah, yeah. then it's all after Lagos. Everything yeah, it's just beautiful. Well, Cam- Cameroon was beautiful, yeah. and then Togo, Daomey, Ghana on the coast. It was yeah. like paradise. Yeah. It was just beautiful, yeah. and and it was very, it was very 
pristine at that time mm-hmm. you know nothing was polluted and mm-hmm. it was it was a beautiful place. and it was it was very safe what i was doing was very safe i i took uh bush taxis where you would get in a taxi and five other people would get right. in and you'd go from one point to the right. other um I met people at various points. There were a couple of Peace Corps volunteers I met in different places, and they were going someplace, so I would go with them to that place. Or uh, Sometimes I would stay in a Peace Corps volunteer's house. Sometimes I remember I spent one night up on the roof of one of those slave castles in Ghana. It was oh, very beautiful yeah. and uh, very, very lovely place. It was just a, it, it was a let's just see what's next kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. And then I went through Ghana and then up and down. I think there was some problem going across the border on the coast. So I went up, up north Kumasi and maybe in the, down yeah. uh, south to Abidjan. Yeah. And I stayed in Abidjan for two weeks. Oh, boy. I, it took me, I think it took me about two weeks to get across. Yeah. And I stayed in Abidjan for almost two weeks and then I yeah. took the plane back. And of course in Abidjan you could speak French. My God, in Abidjan it was like Paris. Yes. They called it the Paris of Africa. Yes. It was. And these people, the World Bank people, they were living the good life. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. they still do. Um, but she, it, my boss from back in the States was the one in charge of the mission. So they treated me royally they huh. took me out every night to discotheques oh. and they and i got all kinds of really pretty clothes made out of african fabrics and and i just had the best huh. time so this is a you're describing a vacation it was yeah. and it was like the absolute opposite of what i had just been living for right. a year right. and and patricia was a very very nice woman and i lived with her in a fancy apartment and uh air conditioning and everything so so then i went i took plane and i went back to chad to teach this stage this um oh that's right this the training group training group and then i went back up to abishay for the second year yeah it was great. I'm really glad I took that vacation. I think it is. I think it is a trip that you could not. Nobody could take it right now. Right. It's. It just wouldn't be. It wouldn't be fun. It wouldn't be feasible, particularly. And it, and might it would be not be safe. It That's would right. not not be safe, As, especially for a woman traveling alone. Oh my god. Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing that my parents. I. I don't actually think I told them that I was doing it. Probably. I mean, I probably told them I was going to go see somebody, but I didn't tell them I was doing what I was doing. And uh, it, it was the kind of thing that it was safe in Africa to do things that it wasn't safe in America to That's do at right. that point. Mm-hmm. Now people, I mean, everybody was afraid when I went to Africa. Oh, my God, you're going to get eaten by tribes of this and you're going to have this and that. And it was like, it turned out to be like the nicest, safest place mm-hmm. to right. be. Didn't yeah. you find yes. that? Yes. And um, I've never felt safer in my life. Oh. But um, now it's not that way. And and I know from having gone back, and I just would not do that. But I'm glad I did it when I could. When you could, right. The time was right. Yeah. So eventually you go back up to Abeche yep. and begin your second year, and now you're living with in a family in their within their compound. Talk about that a little bit. You, you had your own little house within their yes. compound? The, Describe that. The master of the compound, who was my friend, who was the teacher, he had gone to teach in the capital. And so the, that his 
room, which was the best room, was empty, and he gave it to me. He let me rent it. So it's a room. Well, it's... Yeah, the compound is built in a square, and the rooms... I don't think they're... They're not freestanding huts in the... In okay. The, they're, they're, like, built onto the square, so it's like a room here... And then a room there, and a room there, and a room and is there. Is there an open air patio in the middle of there, the square? It is open air, but there was a privacy wall that went halfway down the middle. So he had that that privacy, and that was I got the the spot that that was like the master spot. So oh. I had I had some privacy, mm-hmm. but they had to go into my part of the compound to get to their part around the wall. Oh. So I mean, I saw everybody, but. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it was a very good situation because they lived their life in their part of the compound outside and I could go there and participate with them anytime I wanted to. Uh But in my part of the compound, we didn't congregate a lot. So I had my bed outside. Outside? Yeah. It was a mosquito net. And, um, Oh, that would be cooler then. Yeah. It was very hot. Um, We put it, I think I might've put it inside during our, had no, I think it was always outside. You had I don't a remember there where dust would blow. I don't remember that. I remember that in Senegal. I don't remember so oh. much in Chad. Oh. But um, no, I did have a, my, a bed inside too at, at some some point during the year. But it was mostly outside that mm. I was, mm. and then I would sit in my part of the courtyard and prepare my lessons. I would sit outside. It was so, it was too hot to be inside anywhere. You, you said you had been given a desk or a table. I did have a, a desk. Table it, and chair. it was inside. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it, I would usually sit outside because yeah. I was, uh, or read or something, because it was so hot. Yeah. And so when people would come in, they would greet me. Mm-hmm. And it, they would always, it was so funny. They would always say, what's wrong, Jane? Why are you sitting here all alone? Oh, in Arabic, they would be saying this. No, this this family spoke French. French, okay. Some of them spoke Arabic, some of them, but both, they would, some combination of it. They would be asking, you know, what is it that, you know, what what's up? Because there were a couple of them that were students at the Lycee. Some of the women, I think, spoke some Arabic and some, I don't remember all that, but I was, I was learning some Arabic anyway. So why are you sitting all alone? And I would sometimes then go over and join them. But it was really clear to me that sitting alone to read or to write to my parents, that was an American thing. And I was happy. I was very happy doing that. But they thought I was just sad. So they felt really sorry for me. So that was a big cultural lesson to me. And so I would go over and somebody was always cooking something. There were always two or three babies walking around and running around. And uh, there was somebody plaiting somebody's hair. And it was just, you know, it was just a busy family compound. Sounds wonderful. It was, it was wonderful. And you ate together with them? Um, I'm trying to remember that. I think I did sometimes, and I think I had no. I think I usually ate with them because I had I hired a woman to um, come and make me tea in the morning. Oh, and I think she did my laundry too. I'm not sure, but but I didn't I didn't have any. I think I might have eaten. I didn't eat very well when I was in chat, but um, yeah, I probably ate with them and. Um, 
they they became friends. I, they were good friends of mine, all different generations, and and I had to have a guardian. I had there was a cot inside the entrance, inside the door to the concession, and a guardian slept on that cot. And I um, hired hired him mm-hmm. to watch out for the for me yeah. at night. You know, yeah. And the one thing that was funny about that was there was one holiday, I don't remember if it was the end of Ramadan or one of the big holidays, they, where they do a three-day celebration. And he said, I'm going to go home and and be with my family. And I said, no, you're not. <laughs> because this was the time when they had these celebrations that everybody yeah. would drink and, you know, yeah. it would be crimes and everything. You know, everybody. If, if ever you needed a guardian. Yes. It was- I said, this is the night I need you. He said, no, I can't do it. And so we had quite a discussion with the people in my in my family. And, and he and I had a discussion. And he arranged to get somebody else to come and do his job. And it was really, it was really very interesting to me. Good for you for advocating for yourself. Oh, my it's, gosh. I, really I was necessary. like, this can't happen. But, um, but anyway, that, so, so that was my... And they, they built a, an enclosed uh, outhouse and shower for me. Oh, very nice. Um, I think there had been a hole in the ground before, and they just enclosed it. Yeah. So I had a hole in the ground, but I had, and the shower was another separately half walled part that I took a tea kettle into and did this with. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's just it was really nice. Yeah. So that was what I had. So here you are. You're not Muslim. Mm-mm. Um, you're living in an Islamic uh, culture. And now you're inside the family walls with an Islamic family. Were the women there veiled? They were, but they weren't. They called them veils, what they were. But what it was, was they were these beautiful silk scarves oh. with beautiful, um, with gorgeous sequins and things oh. on them. I oh, mean, hello. every holiday, yeah. the women were given a gift by the husband and they, if there were three wives there were three of equal value of a scarf oh, or so, something so this is a polygamous culture mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. inside your family where you live were there more than one yeah. wife yeah not in the compound where I was mm-hmm. but across the street with the the patriarch and okay. his wives right. but um, but so they they wore these they wore beautiful clothes and there was nothing uh, the veil was like the dance of the seven veils. You know, the veil is to make it mysterious oh, yeah. and sexy. Yeah. And I, yeah. it, they were just, it never occurred to me that they were being hidden by these veils. Okay. They were being enhanced. Okay. And, but, um, and so there wasn't, they weren't it wasn't these a hijabs pro- things. Right. Never right. saw that. Maybe today. Today you would then. see it, I'm yeah. sure, but not then. Um, so. More like Indian women, you know how they yeah. wear these beautiful. Yeah, just it was lovely. like that. Yeah. Well, there's a loveliness. Um, so you didn't find people somehow disrespecting you or something because you were not veiled. No. Or did you find yourself putting on a veil too? No, I think I would have stood out if I put on a veil. I think huh. they they it was a, a sophisticated enough town that they knew that. They knew enough white people and had known enough white people, mostly French, that we did things different. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 
And if I had tried to look or act like them, I think it they might have interpreted it as, especially at the beginning, they might yeah. have interpreted it as she's making fun of us yeah. or something. You would have to have it be given to you as a gift or something. But to... as time went by, yeah. I did I did oh, yes. do things like yes. that. And yes. I did, I, as I became felt part of things, I felt that I could do things more in their way. But that was a that was one of the big social aspects of my town the the distance between Europeans and Chadians and it was very pronounced in my town because there were a number of French people and there was also an army base there um, that we didn't really associate with much but, but they was were there Chadian army not no French 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 it was the French people didn't know it. Still there. It turned out to be a, a scandal. They were based in Senegal, and they would send people over to Abishé, but it was for this rebellion that was, that was happening. Oh, and and so they were there. I didn't I didn't know any of them, but the the guys sometimes went over there to drink with them and stuff. But um, so they were very separate communities, and the French made no. They were not interested in, and they didn't make any effort to get to know Chadian people other than as their students or patients or cooks or, right. or whatever. But here you are breaking that mold by well, I, moving in with a family. I, exactly. And I, I was very, it was the hardest thing for me the whole two years I was there to negotiate those two communities because I didn't want to alienate either one. Right. I wanted to right. know both of them. I knew that I had gone there to meet and work with the Chadians. But I also knew that from the moment I got in there, that the Chadians expected me to be with the French, with the other white people. They didn't make that, that differentiation, American and French. Right. And also that there were aspects of the French society that I liked and wanted to be part of. And, and you know, I'd majored in French in college, you know, so that was something I, I didn't want to turn my back on that group. But it was like I had two lives. Yeah. I would be invited uh, there, here this night and here this night. And it was, they didn't really intersect much. Um, and it was very, it was very difficult. It was mostly difficult to sit and listen to the French say horrible things about the Chinese. Oh, yeah. I yeah. just, that was, I had to hold my tongue it's, a lot. Yeah. So who did, uh, who did you hang out with to keep yourself sane? My boyfriend, this French guy. Oh, yes. Yes. He was the director of the Alliance Française in town, which was a, a good, uh, it was a, I don't know if you know the Alliance Françaises in the world. They, they're like cultural centers, French cultural centers. And so he had a library and he had uh, a, he taught classes in French uh, for people who were not at the school, for people who either couldn't get into the school or whatever. His, his students were not as good as those in the lycée, but he had students every um, every day come. And then once a week he showed a French film. They would send him a French film. And <laughs> we went to this courtyard. They had the projection. And it was always funny because the, either the the reels were mixed up and we'd see in the beginning <laughs> at the end. Or sometimes they would be through different reels for different films. <laughs> it was just, there was always something. But he was, he was very nice and he was very, he was my first, well, no, my fiance was my first real boyfriend. But he, we were very serious. 
Huh. But um, so I was and, with and him the two years. The whole two years. Yeah. 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 Um, and I almost married him, but I didn't. He, I went home, and then the next summer, I went to France to meet him. I went, we spent the summer in France. He met me in Paris, and we spent a little time in Paris, and then we went on a trip around France visiting all of the people we knew in Chad that were home. We oh, visited them in their oh, houses, oh. and they treated us so well. And uh. it was such a wonderful thing because I was able to be in French homes with French people and not feel uncomfortable. You know, I felt like I was in the this culture in the place where this culture was supposed to be, yes. do you know? Yes. And so But was, you also knew you had known each other. I knew these people the and chat, I cared a lot. Chat, of, we had so, a lot in yeah, common and, yeah. and they, you know, they we they were in their family homes. So we met their mothers and oh, yeah. they yeah. cooked us these big meals yeah. and it was just it was marvelous, lovely. Marvelous. But I did decide after that summer that I didn't want to live with them. Uh-huh. And you had said that your your former fiance from yeah. the states also came out to he visit came you. the first year, yeah, and um i was I was not really pleased that he was coming, but I didn't tell him not to come mm-hmm. and that was a huge trip to make back then yeah. today it's not it's not much, but i mean i it, it was really something. The thing that bothered me the most was. When he got there, he said, your sister uh, gave me some brownies and a teddy bear to bring you. And I just didn't have room for them. And that, that was the end. You know? You understand. Yes. I see not. Yes. It was like, okay. <laughs> That's that. Um, so he, he, we wound up. I tried... And my boyfriend, who I didn't tell him was my boyfriend, tried to be nice to him and find people for him to play chess with while I was at school or something like that. We, tr- you know, we tried, but it was just not working out. And we had a couple of disagreements. And I, f- I told him to leave, and he said, "Well, my ticket isn't back, isn't until this date." And I said, "Well, go spend it down in the capital and just yeah. get out of here." Yeah. So that was yeah. that. Very clear. Yeah, it was, but it was good. So, it was good. Is there anything else you'd like to say about your time right there up in Abishai? <laughs> Have we covered all the important stuff? Well, with this group of French people, uh, they took camping trips, and they took me along on them, and those were really wonderful. Um, they... One of the people in town, a a judge, had been there forever. He he really lived there with a Chadian wife, and uh, he he was in the French community, but also part you know part of the Chadian community yeah. too. And he had he was a hunter, and he had a, a Land Rover, and he would organize expeditions, uh, kind of caravans of people. There was a car. Different wow. people had. Land Rovers and stuff. So we'd get in three cars and with provisions, and we always had armed guards with us because there was there was stuff going on in the countryside. But um, these people, the French people, 
they loved to eat. So they took the best food along on these things. And we would go and, and they would usually shoot a gazelle, which I tried to eat, but didn't, I couldn't, I can't mm. eat something that I've already met alive. Especially you know? when it's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So I would, they would take a can of beans or something for me. <laughs> and, but I, I did enjoy the trips. And there was one trip that they organized, the best one, was on camels. We went for like a three-day camping trip on camels. It was so lovely. I loved huh. it. Huh. I had uh, I had a horse. The the French people had horses in my town, and so they um, talked me into trying it. And I'd never gone horseback riding, but when I got there, my first year, I bought a horse, and. Um, Somebody else took care of it. People always, in, in Africa, somebody else always takes care of everything, right? I didn't need to figure out where to put it or how to feed it or whatever. So I just paid somebody some money and they did it. And then I would go on horseback riding outings with these people sometimes in the afternoons. And those were very nice. That was a good way to get out of town. Women, chatty and women did not ride horses. Chatty oh. and men did. Oh, So it was unusual. I felt very self-conscious. I had to put on a pair of pants to ride, and a woman with a pair of pants was not something. So I, like, kind of snuck out of town on my horse. And um, But but it was, it was a very nice thing, and I did learn to ride. I didn't – my horse threw me a few times. He was not very patient with me because I was afraid of him. So the, You could that, sense that. Yeah. yeah. But um, – so – when I got on the camel on this camping trip, it was wonderful because the camel, once you get on them and get up, they don't want, they just go along. It's like being on a boat, you know? Uh, and uh. even if they gallop, you're not very, they, um, you're very secure. The camel saddles are very big huh. and, and you're just secure. On huh. it. So I thought huh. I wasn't worried about riding this camel yeah. as long as somebody would help me put him up and down. And no, there was always yes. somebody to do that. Uh, and it was just very, very nice. I loved it. And um, so those were those were a couple of things that were good for me during that time. Wonderful memories. I had a, I had a huge life there. There was a woman in, that lived in uh, my town. She was a French woman, but she had been there for years and years and years. And she she was kind of a recluse, but she had a compound with animals and she just loved animals. So she had you, if you went to see her, she had ostriches and she had um, lots of different geese and she had rabbits and ostrich was the most exotic thing she had. I'm not sure what else that would be really interesting, but, but I went to see her and I got her to give me uh, two rabbits because I had always wanted to have rabbits as pets. So she did, and I took them home. And it turns out rabbits are crummy pets. Well, they're, they're messy and smelly. They're messy. They'd pet these little pellets all yeah. over the house, yeah. and they scratched me. They didn't want me. I wanted to sit and pet a them, cuddle. you know? <laughs> Apparently, that's a different kind of rabbit. That's than called they. a bunny. Yeah. So. Anyway, I didn't, they didn't last. I took them back and said, thank you. But then she gave me a couple of geese. I put some geese in the 
yard. I don't know why I had those, but I did, and they were okay. But they were kind of messy. And they can geese can also be mean. Yeah, but the, somehow I kept them for a while, and then then I had a cat. Oh. And then I had a dog. So I had a number oh, of pets. Yeah. I had a horse. I, it was a very it was a very nice life. Teaching was the least good part of it. Yeah. But um, yeah. but it was good enough that when I came back here I knew I wanted to be a teacher and I didn't I didn't want to be a teacher before then because my mother had been a teacher and everybody thought that women should be teachers. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what I wanted to be. But I didn't want to be a teacher. So I went into the Peace Corps, and they said, you're going to be a teacher. Because that's all I, I, I was in. What do they call us? A-B generalist. Yes. That means you can do nothing. <laughs> yeah, right? You don't know how to do anything. So we'll make you be a teacher. So I said, okay. So that was when I, I learned that I loved teaching then. Even though I knew I couldn't do it, it was like, damn it, I want to get this right. But. This is fascinating because the teaching part of your whole experience was the the most difficult mm-hmm. and and the most frustrating. You had students who yeah. were not cooperative, and, and and yet you came home determined to be a teacher. I put it on myself. It was like I didn't know how to reach those kids. Yeah, and I didn't. I, I it it was my and I and I think it was. I mean, I wasn't their fault they were in their country <laughs> i was just i i couldn't do it so i came back here and i said all right i'm going to try to save poor kids in america i'll know their culture right so i went back to to school after after doing a bunch of stuff including peace corps training i went back to university of chicago got a master's in elementary education huh. and then i went to north carolina to the country to a newly integrated school down there and this would have been no, 1973 or 74, four, something. 74, 76, yeah, two years. Yeah. And, um, and where, I taught where, second grade there. Where in North Carolina? Pleasant Grove, North Carolina, huh. central North Carolina, but really rural. And the kids were quite poor. And, uh, and I, I liked it, but I still had classroom management. Sure. Parents. I mean, seven-year-olds. They're yeah. no better than that. <laughs> and, and did you different have problems? But... Big, big numbers in the class. Twenty six. That was not too uh-huh. bad. But no, no aids or anything. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was hard. It was very hard. But it was, it was better. It was easy. You know. Yeah. I knew, I knew where the problems were, and and you maybe had some books. We did have books. We did have books. So. And then eventually, you must have gone back to school. Uh, eventually, you wound up as a professor at Brandeis. I did a bunch of things, and then I went um, back to get my... I decided I wanted to be a professor. I, I did a lot of things in the teaching profession and some other things, but I said, I want to be a professor, because I was tired of going to parties and somebody meeting somebody, and they would say, what do you do? And I would say, I'm a second grade teacher, and they would turn around and walk away. And yeah. I have nothing to say to you. So I said, this is really interesting stuff, but I, I want people who, to recognize me. Right, you know? right. So I thought in college, if I got a Ph.D. or if I taught in college, maybe they'd like it. And then I found out you had to have a Ph.D. to get a good job in college. So I went to Stanford and I got a Ph.D. and then I got my in, job in, in French. In French. And then I came here to Brandeis and yeah. taught for 30 years. 30 years. And I, I liked it. I, the first time I remember my first class at Brandeis. 
I got out of class and I looked and I said, I got through my whole lesson plan. That was the first time in my entire life that I had ever finished what I said I was going to do going in. Then I went to my office and on the way to my office, I went to the bathroom and I said, I can do this and I can spend as long here as I want. Nobody's fighting out in the hallway. And then I went to my <laughs> office and I fixed myself a cup of coffee and I put my feet up and I said, this is humane. I've been looking for it for half a century, but it was like, it was the conditions. Yeah. And yeah. I really appreciated that a lot. So yeah. I had luxury teaching for my last 30 yeah. years. Wonderful. Wonderful. And do you, would you have wound up as a professor at Brandeis? Had you not gone into the Peace Corps, do you think ultimately you would have come around to that? No, no, I don't think I, I don't think I would have been a professor. I don't know what I would have done. I mean, I don't know. I really don't know what would have happened. But um, it was a circuitous route. But it, I do think that I learned in Peace Corps that I loved teaching. Yeah, that I really loved it. Yeah. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Any other things that you took away from Peace Corps? Oh, so many. Um, I, I gained a lot of confidence in myself. A lot of confidence. And It's too much to eat just yes, to answer it, a question like that. I can't. It, I took away so much of what I am from Peace Corps. You mentioned something about Senegal. Mm -hmm. I got the idea that you had gone, you've gone back mm -hmm. to Africa. Yeah. I went, um, when I came back here, I, when I, I went to University of Chicago to get that master's degree, I met my first husband there. And we taught in North Carolina, and we, oh. we were married for like 11 years. We went different places, and we wound up out in California for me to be at Stanford. And he was not a traveler and um, not interested in international stuff, so I didn't do much during that time. <laughs> but then when I got my – when I started um, – at Stanford in doing my degree, I had the opportunity to go to France for a year to study as part of that. So I did that. And then I got interested uh, in some of the Francophone African literature and, and cultures and things that were just beginning to be taught in the U.S. colleges. And I got my job at Brandeis, and then we divorced. And then at Brandeis... They t I wanted to do a course on African literature in French, but people told me, don't do that until you get tenure. They won't give you tenure if you get into those oh. marginal fields. Oh. So, uh, so I didn't. Oh. I, six years, I didn't do it. But in my sixth year, when I got the tenure, then I applied for a Fulbright grant to go to Senegal to research to do research for a course, to start a course in Francophone African culture and literature. And I taught that course forever after. Oh, wonderful. And it was, it was wonderful. And um, it, it really, and then I did some, I did a course on Haiti. I told you I got to meet the Haitian students at Brandeis through some of that language foolishness. And, and I worked with them and I went to Haiti and I worked in um, children's, I wound up doing 
working in children's literacy projects in Haiti and in Lesotho, which is oh. where my husband did a big project. Huh. So I've, I've done a lot in yeah. Africa um, since then. But Senegal, Senegal, I was so excited to go because the people, the army people that were in my town in Chad, they had a base in Senegal. They would come over, you know, for a few weeks at a time for an assignment in Chad. And everything that they brought was so, they would bring exotic thing, uh, presents. And my boyfriend bought me a couple of things. He said, get her a necklace oh. or something. And oh. so it was things, these beautiful pieces of oh. gold and things. Oh. So I had this vision of Senegal as being Shangri-La or something. I don't know, El Dorado. And so to go there 20 years later and have some money and be a professor and not a Peace Corps volunteer. Yeah. It was just a really yes. cool way of doing yeah. it. Very yeah. gratifying. Yeah, and I was able to, um, in addition to doing that course at Brandeis, I was able to facilitate students going to Africa to study abroad because we hadn't been doing that. It was fairly new in the American Academy at that time, and and. I sent the first students to Senegal, huh. and I was really, From really pleased about that. Yeah. In fact, one of them just came by here the other day with his fiancée to introduce her to me. He's uh, <laughs> 30, in his 30s now, yeah. but it's fun. I have a lot of lot of good friends, and I always, when the African students would show up at Brandeis, I was always kind of mother hen to them. Would you advise a young woman today to... Join the Peace Corps? Yeah, if she wanted to. I mean, I think now Peace Corps is mainstream enough that the kids know, uh, they know more about it. I mean, they, so I wouldn't say, oh, yes, do it. I would want to know what she wanted out of it. I would want to know about her her goals and whatnot. I've, I have had a lot of students come to me at, at Brandeis and, you know, what am I going to do and talk to me. And a lot of them wanted to work in international stuff. And when I would mention Peace Corps, they would say, oh, yes, but two years. Oh. And, I, and yeah. I would say, you know, two years is really a huge long time at this point of your life because everything's been measured in, you know, first mm -hmm. grade, second grade, mm -hmm. I do this next year. But. In retrospect, it goes by in a flash. And I said, I can tell you that I don't think that you could have an experience in less than two years that would be nearly as important as, as this one. This is just, it was minimum amount of time to get anything. I mean, if I had left after one year, it just would have, I don't know what I would have brought back. I, I wanted to stay a third year. <laughs> My health didn't really help, let me do it, but it was, it was just two years is, it's important to do it. So, but a lot of the kids, you know, everything has to go so fast. And so they have these ideas of, well, I want to be, I want to work for an NGO. I want to be, uh, you know, save the world and go give AIDS vaccines and do things. And they, they want to, they want to do the quick fixes, but they don't want to put in the time. And, and I have seen those people in, in country. And I just, I feel like our whole foreign aid thing is, and international humanitarian stuff is so messed up because people want it to work fast. Mm. And Peace Corps, I think that may be one of the things I took from Peace Corps is 
things are slow. Things that good things are slow. And you don't even know until years later. And you may not even ever know mm-hmm. what influence mm-hmm. you've had. But you just, I mean, teaching is certainly that way. I don't, mm-hmm. I have no idea. Uh, I hope I've influenced more for the good <laughs> for the bad. But you don't really know. Right. You leave them and then, and then there it is. But uh, you just can't go in and fix a country. And I think Peace Corps knew that way back when and still knows that. But it doesn't seem to have gotten through to the um, foreign service or the any of the USAID or anybody else. Um, so I don't know. Well, Jane Hale, yeah. thank you very much. Good. It's been a great interview. Thank you. And there you have it, another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I should have mentioned at the beginning of the show, but this episode was from the JFK RPCV archives. Uh, This is the third one that I have done from there. And actually, I have been in contact with the people that run the archives, and they are actually thinking of starting their own podcast. So I'm going to have someone on the show from them talk about their project, what they've been doing with the JFK library, uh, the podcast that they've been working on to release uh, to start sharing some of these stories. Uh, But I'll probably continue to share them as well. uh, So you guys can find out more about that podcast in an upcoming episode. But until next time, remember, every volunteer has a story. What's yours?